The DOPS team, the data operations team, has kind of been the game changer for us again. And I'm, I'm talking about it a lot because its importance continues to grow for us. And, you know, the SDR teams, were, if it wasn't being cleansed, we're, you know, we're calling kids in their basement, people who are wasting our time, people who are nowhere, were not in any way going to be a customer of ours through their own error or whatever. Um, we wanted to make sure that we could cleanse that as effectively as we can. And, and that's what we've been able to do. And that SDR team, again, is really efficient, relatively inexpensive team for us um, that has, uh, we think, been instrumental in helping to increase our close rates. Yeah, this, this data team, I think, is, is the, uh, the goldmine here, is that I think people often talk about just the SDR process or the, just the BDR function, and I think the success of both of those functions are highly predicated upon this team. So the big question is this, how do you grow your SaaS company? In an era where information is everywhere and every book, expert, blog, and podcast is evangelizing different paths to scale, how do you figure out which path is right for you and your SaaS company? My name is Shivna Narayanan and I'm your host and growth advisor. Formerly, I was the CMO of Wild Apricot and grew to 20 million in ARR without a sales team. This podcast is about a simple idea, that growth can be engineered. Each episode, I will help you filter through the noise and curate and distill growth strategies to help you succeed in growing your SaaS company. Welcome to How to SaaS. Let's get started. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about how you can work with How to SaaS and what kinds of clients we work with. We have three solutions. We provide CMO consulting, where we walk you through our nine box marketing framework to fully audit your funnel and marketing activities and we give you a strategy and roadmap to scale your demand generation and digital marketing. Number two, we provide PE advisory services where we work with private equity investors to scale the growth of their portfolio companies through consulting programs, training, and board member services. And number three, we run the world's flagship demand generation training program for SaaS companies and their marketing executives, leaders, and team members. It's a 12-week intensive that gives you the frameworks you need to scale your SaaS company's demand generation using paid media, SEO, content marketing, nurture programs, website optimization, and more. To check out all these solutions and to get more information, set up a free consult at www.howtosass.com. Also, if you like the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher and leave us a rating or review so that other people looking for content like this can also discover it. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Now, on to the show. In 2014, I read this book. It's called Predictable Revenue. It's by a guy named Aaron Ross. You may have heard of it. Um, And basically what it talks about is a system to generate pipeline for your SaaS company by setting up defined roles of of a business development rep, an SDR, and an account executive, all of whom have clear lines between them and clear set of accountability for their different functions. Um, And so based on that book, I ended up going to a conference called Sastra Annual um, and saw a bunch of talks. And uh, while during one of the sessions, I stepped outside uh, to get a cup of coffee and I stumbled into Steven Silverback. Um, And it just so happened that he was also from Toronto. And we got to talking and he had built exactly that kind of a team at Clio, which is one of the biggest SaaS companies in Canada. Uh, and they serve the legal space uh, with the legal practice management solution. Um, so on this episode, I brought Stephen on to discuss all the different kinds of 
activities that his team works on. Um, he is the global uh, SVP of sales at Clio. Uh, and so he talks about all the different functions inside, um, who's doing what, what each team is responsible for, how many people are on each team, their conversion rates, and how everything is structured. So it's a super insightful interview. If you're trying to build out a sales team, trying to figure out how to get started or even how to scale it, it's an interesting interview because we walk through Steven's journey from building that team from the very beginning to now they're looking to scale to 20, 30, 40 reps. So it's super interesting. I think you're going to really enjoy Enjoy the episode. So um, have a listen and let me know what you think. Thanks, guys. All right. Welcome to the show, Stephen. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, so why don't you just introduce yourself, Cleo, and your role and uh, what you're in charge of? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Stephen Silberback. I'm the Senior Vice President of Global Sales at Clio. Um, Cleo is actually a Canadian company. We're headquartered in Vancouver. I'm based out of an office in Toronto that uh, didn't exist before I got hired, but I was uh, based here and wanted to uh, kind of leverage my network to build out our sales organization. So we're now uh, uh, coming up on about 50 people here in Toronto, and the company Cleo itself is about 200 people. And what we essentially do are we are a, a SaaS-based um, legal practice management solution. I always like to describe it in simplest terms as Salesforce for lawyers. Uh, uh, so we give them everything uh, that they need in order to run their uh, their legal practices uh, successfully with the same um, kind of functionality that any other business person uh, would need, but um, geared specifically for the legal industry. And we tend to focus on small and medium-sized law firms, so anywhere from a solo firm, so a solo practitioner, uh, right up to firms um, that are global in scope, but often we tend to focus on smaller practice areas. So we tend to focus on uh, user opportunities in the, again, from one right up to about 50 or 60 uh, users. My role is I lead the entire selling organization. So when I joined the company about uh, coming up on three and a half years ago now, after an eight and a half year run at Salesforce, um, we had we had a very small team, about six or seven people. And today we sit at um, uh, crossing 40 people across our two cities um, with our primary focus on um, the United States market, but also Canadian, and we do have a uh, a small but growing team in Dublin, Ireland, to focus on mostly English-speaking Europe opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so, what's the makeup of that sales team? Like, what are the different functions that exist within your umbrella? Yeah, so we've got uh, essentially four uh, kind of formal selling functions. We've got our BDR AR team, so business development and account representative. We've we're, we continue to tweak the uh, the names uh, consistently. That team is essentially our outbound, 100% outbound prospecting uh, team that they uh, find. Uh, prospect for their own opportunities and then actually take them right through to the close. We then have our SDR team, our sales development rep team. They're responsible 100% for qualifying all of our inbound leads. Uh, So we have a pretty robust marketing operation and that marketing operation is uh, responsible for developing um, awareness, pretty typical marketing functionality and then driving leads to us. All of those leads, which today is around 22 or 2300 marketing qualified leads 
per month that are coming uh, through our through the various channels that they do. The SDR team is responsible for the initial contact with those new opportunities, qualifying them, determining you know the typical things that they would be looking for, size and scope of their operation, uh, the type of law practice that they're in, trying to understand what it is got them to us, what kind of problems they're looking to solve. Um, their geography, and then um, the SDR team then qualifies those and passes those off to our account executive teams, of which I have two formal ones and one kind of sub-team. So we have divided our, op- our uh, account executive operation into um, two teams based on the size of the opportunities that they're working. So we have a velocity team that we've named them, which works on accounts with opportunities from one to four users. And then we have our strategic team which works on accounts from uh, five users and above. Um, so our larger deals, and they go right up to 50 and 60 users, as I said earlier. The sub-teams that we have under those, under the Velocity team, we have a sub-team that is our um, expansion and upgrade team. And it's a relatively new team for us, but we've reached enough mass in our account base. We've got um, well over 40,000 paying users. It represents a little over 12,000 uh, individual law firms. Uh, that team is responsible for uh, expansion and upgrade opportunities within our account base. So those who are looking to um, add users or in, or change the, uh, the version of Clio that they're using if they want to expand and buy more functionality, then that team is responsible for that. And under the strategic team, we also have a sub-team that we call GIN, G-I-N. It stands for Government and In-House Counsel. And we have a, a small team there focusing specifically on kind of our a vertical within our, our vertical, which is focusing on government legal opportunities, of which there are uh, many, and in-house counsel. So that would be law firms in, or excuse me, uh, law departments inside other commercial businesses, you know, doing contract work, whatever, whatever in-house counsel would do, which is a pretty uh, big and growing opportunity for us. So we've segmented that out and they work as part of the strategic team to identify and close those opportunities. And then I have a sales engineering uh, team. It's a small team um, and they do report into sales. They're not a a revenue producing, direct revenue producing team, but are responsible for typical solution engineering support for the entire sales organization. Right. That's a great description. Um, And that's actually the number one reason I wanted to have you on the call is to share because you have one of the biggest sales teams that I've seen and Clio is such a massive company. So for you to share how these teams are structured and what their priorities are, I think that can be the best uh, benefit for the audience. So l- let's let's go down the list one by one. Let's start with the BDR sure. team, right? So you, this, this is your yep. out, outbound function. So what are the lists that they're calling? What does the process look like? Yeah, so uh, it's interesting because this team is only about 18 months old. Remember, the entire Clio company is only about 200 people, but we've tried to we've tried to create a pretty robust uh, selling organization, probably bigger than a company of our size would normally have. Uh, but we identified the opportunity early to invest where we thought um, we'd obviously get um, at the fastest scale. Um, so the BDR team in its 18-month history has actually gone through a number of iterations. Initially, when we built that team, and we built it pretty quickly, we went from zero to 10 people in the course of about three months, including a leader for that team. The goal there was 100% cold calling, um, but no uh, 
uh, no carry through to the close. So their job was uh, essentially making a 80 to 100 outbound dials per day to law firms um, to identify an opportunity, um, identify some of the key uh, points that we would need to view it as something we wanted to continue to work with, and then immediately pass that over to the account executive team based on the criteria that I explained earlier, and they did continue to make calls. We've iterated on that a couple of times, actually, and ended up where we are today, where we've kind of split it between BDRs who continue to do that, only outbound calls, but do not close deals, and ARs, account representatives, we're just looking for a new fun name, um, and they actually continue to do outbound calling, but also um, can take those opportunities right through to the close. So we've matured that team, we've created career pathing, et cetera, for that team as we've matured it over the last 18 months. How do we run it is actually pretty simple. Our goal always in building that team was we want our folks on the phone um, as much of the time as possible. We don't want them spending time researching who to call. We don't want them digging up names and numbers. We don't want them having to spend too much time qualifying, um, say, practice area or size or location of the firms they're calling. We want them maximizing uh, their phone time. So with that, we had to uh, kind of build a data operations that would allow them essentially to feed this team uh, 80 to 100 different phone numbers that they could call each day without having to spend the time to actually create those lists themselves. And that's what we did. We built a team that then went out and um, was able to kind of gather the appropriate information from a number of databases that are out there that are both specific to legal as well as LinkedIn and all the other places that um, these types of professionals uh, tend to hang out. And this data operations team got um, pretty sophisticated pretty quickly and uh, have now you know, built a database that they feed through our systems that we use, Salesforce and Inside Sales, to literally just one by one feed these guys numbers and, and as much information as is um, currently publicly available so they can hang up on one call and pretty much get right on to the next call and start making those outbound dials. And that's turned out to be a really effective approach. So no time wasted. Our phone people are on the phone eight hours a day. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's usually one of the biggest challenges when you're talking about starting an outbound function is maintaining that inflow of, of numbers that you can keep dialing. So how are you guys doing that? Is, are you guys buying lists? Or do you have uh, outsourced people on Upwork and things like that? Like, how are you guys getting that list together? Yeah, so we're doing a combination of both. So there's some lists that we are buying. Like I say, there are um, uh, lists uh, very specific to the legal industry. Uh, the other thing we noticed that our customer base, which again is lawyers, um, they're uh, they're out there. They're they're in no way looking to hide. So they're actually pretty easy to find. So we've done both. We've purchased lists. We've worked with uh, outsourced folks who are able to provide us with um, pretty extensive databases um, of our of our potential customer base. And then our operations team works pretty hard to. Um, kind of embellish and qualify the data as much as possible before it gets uh, sent over to our uh, uh, to our BDR and AR team. So once it appears on their in their queue on in Salesforce, um, it's it's pretty accurate. The number generally works. Uh, we we've in many cases got a name or at least uh, one or two names of the firms we're calling. We have some good um, demographic information on them, and it's worked really well. And we viewed it as the differentiator to give us a real shot at making this BDR AR team work because it, it is a bit of an experiment. I know many SaaS companies are doing it. In fact, you know, it was our venture capital partners who, who encouraged us to do us and helped us define and create the model. And the model really became um, dependent upon a good data operations team. And, and we've built a really good one that allows us to, to feed this team really effectively. 
Mm-hmm. And and so okay, so you ha- you you're gathering these lists in all these different ways. Uh, how big is the team right now? You said ten people, or has it grown since? Yeah, then? the team is the team is actually uh, twelve now, plus uh, a leader. Um, and our uh, goal actually is to probably grow that to at least double its size. Uh, in the next six months, we, we're starting to see really significant payback and it's becoming a really kind of cost effective uh, a channel for us. And we view it as a, an extension essentially of our marketing department. So we're touching the goal here is to touch uh, lawyers who have not um, in any way engaged with us in any of our other marketing initiatives. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. You, you say you have 12 people, you're looking to double it. There's, it's cost yeah. effective, but at the same time, you still call it an experiment. Why is that? Uh, well, I think we're we're past. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I think you know it was certainly an experiment where we designed the program when we put it out there. It was an experiment in that uh, one with the with the uh, the acquisition cost uh, financial model makes sense. Could we hire people who would be effective in this? It is a junior role. It's often an entry level sales position role, role although um, ironically vitally important to the growth of the business. Um, and was our data approach going to work? And did it make sense? And did we have the right metrics to measure against? And would our customers respond to it? All were experimental. We're calling lawyers who aren't particularly effective at or good at dealing with salespeople. They're not particularly um, technology um, literate, uh, which is both a problem and also viewed as a huge opportunity for us. So, you know, probably a good question to say, I think we're past the experimental stage now because we are going to expand that that team. Um, but we are, um, in the same tone, going to continue to experiment with different approaches and different iterations of that team to see how we can kind of maximize the output. I think we've been we've been like pleasantly surprised at how quickly we've been able to scale and actually turn it into meaningful business for us. Right, and when, and when you call it an experiment that's now successful, like what were some mistakes that you made that would what, it was leaning one way or the other where you weren't sure if it was going to work for you guys? Um, so I, I, the earlier mistakes were not hiring the right profile of people for the job. And really, I think part of that, uh, came from, we, we actually didn't know what was going to be, uh, successful. Um, because we obviously were trying to hire people who were cost effective with, you know, with that came limited experience. We started to learn about the right places to recruit from and the right backgrounds, even though, uh, the folks who were hiring didn't necessarily have software sales background. Most obviously had not a ton of experience in talking to lawyers, almost nobody we hired does. Um, and we had to figure out that hiring model. And I think, and, you know, over the course of uh, a pretty big hiring blitz in the early days, we were able to figure out uh, what worked and what didn't. Um, and then, uh, you know, the second part of like the kind of ongoing need to iterate was around the data. Were we targeting the right types of firms? Were we, we were starting to kind of gather data to understand which firms were more responsive to this kind of outreach, um, which firms were more responsive to being adopters of technology and would be open to having phone calls and taking an immediate demo uh, in real time from, hey, we just cold called you and figured out a way to get past your gatekeeper to can you spend 20 minutes with us on the phone right now? Um, we're doing a lot of you know data analysis and data experimentation to make sure we're continuing to optimize that. Um, so those are certainly the early experiments in a lot of places where we had to make quick pivots and iterations in order to get it right. Um, and now we're continuing to do that uh, with figuring out different places and different approaches to attack this cold call market. Do we go in with, with you know, a different type of pitch? Um, do we target a different type of lawyer, a different type of, type of practice area? All those things continue to um, give us some kind of really interesting insight and allow us to iterate really effectively. 
Yeah, just like anything else, I guess people is where most of the mistakes are made and learnings. Um, yeah, no question. Yeah, so, okay, so you have, let, let's say you have 12 reps right now, they're dialing 80 to 100 calls a day, so that's 1,200 calls a day total, and then on, on a monthly basis, you're looking at roughly 24,000 calls. How many, how many leads does that produce for you per month? Uh, yeah, so actually in our best month, which was actually December, and obviously part of that was its year end, so... Um, the buying frenzy was on. We had a really successful end of the year. Uh, we were averaging um, about 10, it was actually about 11 opportunities closed per BDR AR in the month of December, which was really successful for us. So wow. part of that was obviously the, redu- you know, the, um, the uh, kind of accumulation of getting it right and building up some pipeline. Not everything, the, the intention is not always to do a one cold call close, although those are great. Um, we, we want to engage folks and we don't necessarily try to rush them through the selling cycle. So some of these were opportunities that might have been uh, created uh, earlier in the month or even in the previous month. Um, but it was a really successful month for us. So the average um, account rep was uh, creating and closing somewhere between you know nine and, and 10 or 11 uh, new opportunities in the month of December. Really successful for us. That's an incredible month considering, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but let's see, just from the cold calls that you're sending, how many graduate to the opportunity status just from the new calls that you're making? Because things carry over from previous months too, right? Yeah. So we're getting, you know, we're interesting. We're getting, we're getting about 10% engagement rate. So people who don't just say, you know, no and slam the phone down or some variation of that. Um, and so we're getting about 10% engagement rate and about 50% of that 10% um, continue on in a conversation with the account representative to uh, essentially turn it into what we view as an opportunity. But interestingly, what we're doing with those that don't want to engage, we're, or at least engage in the sense of talking to us and, and, and you know, spending that kind of time, we're gathering more information in many of those cases and, are, and, and have figured out a good way to say, hey, okay, appreciate it. Uh, sorry to interrupt your day, but do you mind if I kind of grab your email address and we follow up with some, um, some material that might uh, you know, be of interest to you and maybe we can follow up at a later date. And um, that's been a really good learning for us in that um, they're open to that. So we then run that through our nurture and marketing machine and then go back at them after. So we're starting to now see that the program is maturing that we're actually going back and recalling some of these folks who we made initial calls to, and we're starting to see engagement uh, at that level uh, as well. The one thing that also happened is once we kind of graduated this program from pure cold calling and no kind of really deal uh, doing to uh, following it through on the deals is the number of phone calls per day uh, started to go down, obviously, because they were spending more time on individual calls and follow-ups. So we're now, we're probably now settling in more comfortably in the 60 to 80 calls per day. Um, but with that, we're closing deals. And it's part of the reason we're going to continue to expand that team because it's like many things, it's a volume game now. And we've, we think we've come close to cracking the code on how we can make it successful at scale. And I guess I guess that's the part that doesn't get talked about enough is that uh, people look at this more of as like a standalone channel for acquiring customers. But if you can get them to your website and into, let's say, your Facebook retargeting or to download a white paper, now they're in your SDR funnel and, and that has other types of uh, externalities that are positive for the business. 
Yeah, absolutely. In fact, when we, when my CEO and I were kind of on a road show going to see uh, companies around the United States and Canada that we thought were had successfully built BDR teams before we started our own, um, we found an interesting mix of some some companies had the BDR team actually as part of the marketing team and not the sales team. Very much for that for that reason that um, the call might not result in a in an opportunity today, but it adds to your overall marketing pipeline. We decided to keep it in sales because we wanted to. Have have it much more of a sales focused organization, but we absolutely view it as an extension of our marketing operation and, and an ongoing awareness campaign for our product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so 10% of the calls have an engagement, and then 50% of those continue to a conversation. So basically, 5% of calls lead to some sort of an opportunity. What's the, what's yeah, the, and what, then you know, and then we're closing at you know our average. We have a we have a kind of a really. Um, uh, I think pretty successful close rate. So our velocity team, which I explained a little bit earlier, which does our smaller deals, are closing at about a market from when they receive a marketing qualified lead. They're closing at greater than forty percent of those leads to close deals. And our strategic team, which is bigger deals, obviously more complex deals, are closing at greater than thirty percent. These deals are closing at once they get to what would be the equivalent of a marketing qualified lead. Like say they're engaged with us in some level. Um, they're closing at about 15 to 20% conversion rate. We think the deal cycles are a little longer, which is interesting, even though they're smaller. But, we, you know, we're, we're trying to crack the code a little bit is does the fact that they had no interest in us and engage with us based on a cold call create more hesitation? Are they slower to make decisions um, just because, you know, they didn't reach out to us, we reached out to them, we're forcing them to rethink a span that they were in no way considering in, in uh, before we made the call, at least that's what it would appear to be. Um, so our goal now is to try to increase that conversion rate and figure out what else can we do uh, maybe after cold call, but before close to continue to nurture that and get quicker close times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But 40% close yeah. rate, even on the smaller deals, is, is really high, and even the 30%. It's fantastic. And it, yeah, it really is. And it's a, it's, you know, it's a testament to you know, a lot of good marketing, nurturing, and, and a really effective SDR team, which I'm sure we're going to talk about next, which, which um, has really become kind of an integral part of our, our selling machine. And we think it's you know, beyond good salespeople who know how to close. Um, good qualification really makes that job much easier. Yeah, and maybe we could touch on that before we move on to the other sales areas. Is just how mature your marketing machine is. Like I think compared to other SaaS companies, you guys have an annual conference and you guys put out a lot of great content. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, we do. So I think we do have a pretty robust marketing organization for the size and scope of our company. Um, I think we do all the traditional things that most good SaaS companies do. We spend a lot of time, obviously, creating content. Um, we spend a, we you know continue to experiment with um, as many. Um, uh, marketing techniques that we think will work, all the standard SEO, SEM stuff, and a lot of Facebook work. I, think, I, don't think we're, I don't think we're particularly revolutionary in anything we do. I think we're just trying to be really tight and focused on um, using the right tools and creating the right content and reaching our market uh, effectively and, and consistently tweaking uh, not only our message to the market, but our value proposition and maturing our value proposition. So we've done a lot of interesting things um, beyond the user conference, which I'll talk about briefly in a second. But in this example, a very quick example that's been really successful for us, we actually did a survey of our customers to try to get an understanding um, of uh, how much efficiency or essentially how much time using Clio saves them in their average day working as a lawyer. How much how much time do we give them back to do whatever it is uh, they think is most valuable? And what we learned is we're saving uh, folks uh, greater than about an hour uh, 
uh, a day uh, over the course of every working day. And, you know, if you start to add that up, it, it's, it, it becomes eight hours a week or so. Um, and we've kind of dubbed that the Clio day and built an entire marketing effort around what are you doing with your Clio day? If you use our product, we save you an hour a day. We're giving you back a full day's worth of uh, time each week. And what are you doing with that? And we actually built a really cool video campaign and did some contests around it. And people sent in videos about how they're using their Clio day. Really interesting. Some are using it to, you know, deliver more business. Some were using it to spend more time with their families. Really interesting stuff and really successful for us. So we're trying to do creative things like that, which led uh, four years ago to our Clio Cloud Conference, which is we just completed our fourth one in Chicago in uh, this past September. Uh, that continues to grow. And, you know, um, we, we changed the legal conference um, world uh, when we brought ours because we brought that you know technology SASP into it. Those of us who are in technology go to our conferences are great. When you go to the legal conference world, you find out how lucky we are because they were terrible and um, there was you know nothing fun about them. The content was dry and poorly delivered. The experience was awful. Um, so lawyers are not used to having um, a really effective conference. So we tried to make our um, our Clio Cloud Conference, everything that all the lawyers had never seen before. So we, you know, we copied all the great stuff that all the great conferences do, starting probably with Dreamforce um, over my eight years there, and tried to find good things to do. And that's become a really successful, um, a really successful event for us, and uh, kind of a game changer in our industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've noticed a lot of those different marketing things, and I think I think compared to a lot of other SaaS companies, you do all the fundamentals really well, and for the most part, you know, just any any area of business or, or life, as long as you're doing the fundamentals really well, you'll you'll get get away with almost anything, right? Yeah, totally agree. I don't think we're doing anything particularly revolutionary. I think we're just trying to be like most good companies. I think we're just trying to, in marketing and in sales, is just kind of execute really well and iterate really quickly and use data as much as we possibly can. I know it's the buzzword and everybody's talking about it, but like, you know, get data people in your in your business probably earlier than you think you need them. And um, the output from that team and how it can help drive decision making and allow you to be really nimble and agile um, is amazing and even surprising to me as I was kind of the leader with my CEO and driving to create that data operations team. Um, I'm even pleasantly surprised at how successful it's been for us. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about the the ACVs of these accounts that you're closing, the ones that are for your velocity team versus the strategic team. Like, What, what are the difference in, in the size of the account from a revenue perspective? Yeah, our deals are small, relatively speaking. We are, we're a volume business. We're a very much transactional business. The majority of our business is done, um, you know, monthly subscriptions. We're moving, we're pushing much more to kind of annual commitments, but we're pretty typical in, in the way SaaS goes. Our, you know, our average product is 60 bucks a user per month. And so in the Velocity team, you know, they, they're, they max out at four users. So, you know, it's, a couple of hundred dollars if we have to discount a little in order to win the business of monthly uh, recurring revenue. And obviously you can extrapolate that out times 12 to get ARR. Um, Our uh, strategic teams are averaging, uh, I think the average is about 14 or 15 users per deal. We're doing, you know, we're starting to do more and more deals, uh, 20 and above users, and there's still a lot of deals, four or five, six, seven, eight users. uh, so uh, again, our average our average selling price, our ARPA is is our ARPA is actually about um, per user is slightly over fifty dollars. I think it's about fifty five dollars. Um, so our goals, like any good sales team, is increase our ARPA. So we want you know more you know maximum users in every opportunity, 
and maximum dollars for every deal that we do. Right. And, and that's where but we're the... small. We're volume, right? It's like we got to sell a lot of stuff uh, in order in order to, to to keep the machine moving. Right. And like a wild apricot is very similar. Like you guys are looking at basically $240 a month to about $1,000 a month per account. We're at, yeah. we're at $40 a month to $270. So we are even yeah. more so. Um, so and, and that's where your, your expansion slash upgrade team comes in is because you're closing these smaller deals. Uh, landing and expanding that account is really important. Absolutely. So lending and expanding is important, but also ensuring that our product is giving us an opportunity to have an, you know, an upsell opportunity. So expansion is interesting because if you're selling to a three user firm or, you know, two or three or four user firm, we're working really hard to make sure all, all four of those users buy up front. Um, and so expansion doesn't necessarily become huge opportunity at the bottom end of our market, but um, uh, upgrading them certainly will become a, a continually important part of our market with strategic uh, bigger deals, bigger opportunity, bigger expansion opportunity, because it is much harder to get everybody on at once. But yeah, that upgrade team, all of a sudden, another experiment for us that very quickly became um, a really successful channel for us as we, as our product expanded and we could differentiate. And we now have three tiers of product, the majority of which started in our middle product. We want to obviously move as many people as we can to our to our elite tier. And um, that's been a really successful outcome for us. So they, that team, that upgrade team, um, you know, responds to inbound requests of which uh, those are increasing, which is great. Uh, but in many cases, they're, they're outbound calling to our current customer base to sell them more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and can you give more detail about the like? What's the difference between uh, your middle tier and your elite tier, and what, is, what does the customer get? What's the main benefit? Uh, so our approach on the middle tier, uh, which we call our boutique, uh, you know, uh, named around kind of boutique law firms, um, satisfies the needs of most solo to um, relatively small law firms and gives them all the basic functionality necessary to run their. Uh, practices, all the core functionality that we view important, billing, time management, timekeeping, matter management, et cetera, all the, the common core stuff. And then our elite package, which is our uh, our highest end package, adds in a lot of additional functionality that slightly larger firms or uh, kind of more savvy and sophisticated firms would uh, would see value in. So we, we add some additional um, billing and reporting capabilities that are generally required from slightly more sophisticated or more high volume law firms. We add in um, some partner uh, programs, things that we've done with um, some other industry leaders in our space around um, uh, credit card processing and billing, which has been really successful for us. We've added in things like um, something called Court Rules, which is uh, a, a company we've partnered with and then fully white labeled and integrated into our product, which for lawyers uh, essentially makes their day-to-day uh, uh, incredibly easy um, based on whatever jurisdiction they're in a- across the country um, and continue to add value at the high end. What's interesting for us, and it's a great question, is like companies of our size often don't think about kind of pricing and packaging of their products as a strategic uh, mm-hmm. thought. I think people give a lot of a thought to kind of what am I going to price it at? I agree. We did yeah. the same thing. But how you package it and how you think about where you put different features so you, you know, you're not giving that impression that we want to drive everybody up and you know, any one of the 10 additional features in a lead is going to be enough to get people to pay for it. We became really, um, we did a lot of research and we became really kind of data-driven about how we're going to price and package our product. And we think we found the sweet spot. We're iterating constantly, but it, that's becoming a successful, um, the upgrade channel is becoming a successful channel for MRR growth for us. Uh, I think a little bit quicker than we actually anticipated. 
anticipated, which has been which has been really great. Yeah, I think I think that point is is really valid. Is that I think people, when people think about pricing strategy, they usually think about just the price point and what will close deals. But very much it has to do with the functionality and the bundling and the packaging around each of those pricing plans. Absolutely. That was our learning as we kind of figured out what price points to land on. We struggled with what do we put where in each of our three tiers. Um, and once we think we got that right, we started to see the immediate results um, from it. Mm-hmm. And so how much is this team able to increase your ACV per account? Like, let's say on average, it's like seven, eight hundred dollars per month per, per, per account. Like how much are they able to increase it? Um, you know, it's interesting. It, it, they're, n- they're not hugely significant increases. Um, in, in many cases, it's um, just the delta between uh, one, one version and another. So in many cases, it's only $10 per user more. Some cases less. It might be adding an additional user. So the average increase is around $100 on average. Um, but it's, uh, you know, the... Uh, the CAC on those is amazing, right? Because we've already paid all the costs we paid to acquire that customer is already sunk. So these guys, as they continue to pile on uh, more revenue, we give more reasons for customers to come back and buy more from us. Uh, we shorten our, our, you know, our CAC. We do all kinds of interesting things uh, behind the scenes and thinking about the value of this team. And we actually started this upgrade team as a you know, one, I think it was a two person experiment because we try never to experiment with only one person doing anything and have quickly grown it to four people because um, it was hugely successful. The other learning we got from it, a little off topic, but the other learning we got from it was many of our current customers were unaware of everything else we brought to the table. And that was a good messaging for our marketing team to understand that these are already paying customers logging into the application every single day and they themselves weren't even aware of some of the other things that we were doing so we started to make a lot of interesting tweaks on things like the login page and doing you know pop-ups and and um, um, in-app marketing messaging to to let um, our current users know that there's lots more uh, that they could be doing with the product if they upgraded and that's driven a lot of inbound traffic as well yeah absolutely and i think i think that that CAC argument is, is probably the best argument is that you've, you've already spent that money up front. What, what is your CAC right now? Overall, a CAC is about uh, 16 months. It's come down from 18, and our drive is to obviously continue to bring that down. And it's one of the reasons the BDR AR team that I first spoke about um, has been so successful for us because the CAC on that is so low, or the the return on that is so much quicker than a marketing driven, a pure marketing driven lead, and all the money you're spending on doing that. We view that, and we're very careful to try not to muddy the data um, to make sure that we're accurate measuring the CAC on our. Um, on our outbound effort, which is uh, significantly below uh, 12 months. So it's much more cost efficient. Um, so we're scaling. Right, right, right. That's, that's great. And the, the 12-month mark is like the golden number. We're, we're, hovering, Absolutely. we're hovering right around there. We're like 12.25. Yeah. So, when we uh, average it all together, we're still higher than we want to be, but we recognize that that channel could be a really great way to drive down that that cost. Well, well, it's also always a trade-off too, right? Because you guys are a market leader, you have cash in the bank, so, you know, 16 months isn't all that awful, you're just waiting for four more months, so it's, it's a Absolutely. trade-off. Absolutely, but, you know, cash in the bank and, and venture capital partners who want to see it down. So, yeah, of course. Um, the of drive course. is always there, you're absolutely right, but, it, but the, you know, the money in the bank is the opportunity to do some experiments and try things yeah. um, to drive it down and be nimble with it, which is which has been a great experience. Mm-hmm. Has has this initiative helped you get closer to negative churn at all? 
Yeah, in fact, we are, um, I don't want to say we're consistently negative churn, uh, but we're getting pretty close to being consistently negative churn. Yeah. So it's been, it's been, it's been great for us. Um, that and, you know, fleshing out all the other teams that help minimize uh, churn, our customer success team and our support teams um, are all, you know, very much aligned now with, um, with driving towards negative churn. And we've been pretty successful at it. We're pretty, pretty proud that we were able to get there pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, switching gears a little bit, we haven't gotten sure. into the SDR team yet. You guys are, yeah. you guys are generating 2,200 leads for that team. And how, how did the economics look there and the conversion rates? Uh, so the economics are really good. So um, what we've done is we've tried to leverage our data, our data team even effectively there as well. So we get, you know, we do all this marketing stuff. You get all of this inbound through all the stuff that we do, all the traditional stuff, webinars, white papers, trials, all that stuff. And um, instead of sending these directly to the to the SDR team, which we saw was clogging it up and lowering the efficiency of that team. Um, we actually run them through the data operations team first. So all those leads go in through that team and get cleansed. And we run them against filters and we run them against data. And we do a lot of things to make sure that when those raw leads hit the SDR team, we have a pretty decent understanding that they're probably actually really a lawyer or somebody who would be a customer of our product and click on us or do something uh, unintended that we've never liked would be a, a customer, that we have enough uh, data to actually, in some meaningful way, get in touch with them, a real phone number, a real email address. We've been able to cross-reference using geotagging and all that stuff, where they are, all that stuff. So we tried to get, um, again, with the same kind of approach that we did with the BDR team is we want people who are working our phones to spend as much time on the phones as they can and as little time as possible doing anything else. Um, so this is, where again, where the data team becomes so valuable. So we're hitting uh, those leads that flow into um, the uh, SDR team are converting at about 50%. And that conversion is from MQL to sales-ready lead. So all those 22, the SDR team gets on the phone, qualifies, you know, goes through our process of making sure we've got all the information we need to successfully view it as a lead that is ready to be put into the hands of an account executive. Those are being converted about 50%. And then of that 50%, the conversion rates for the two um, selling organizations are, as I said before, slightly over 40 for, uh, for velocity and slightly over 30 for uh, strategic. And for, um, and for us, that's like a real success story. And the, the DOPS team, the data operations team, has kind of been the game changer for us again. And I'm, I'm talking about it a lot because its importance continues to grow for us. And, you know, the SDR teams, were, if it wasn't being cleansed, we're, you know, we're calling kids in their basement, people who are wasting our time, people who are nowhere we're not in any way going to be a customer of ours through their own error or whatever. Um, we wanted to make sure that we could cleanse that as effectively as we can. And, and that's what we've been able to do. And that SDR team, again, is a really efficient, relatively inexpensive team for us um, that has, uh, we think, been instrumental in helping to increase our close rates. Yeah, this this data team, I think, is is the uh, is the goldmine here. Is that I think people often talk about just the SDR process or the just the BDR function, and I think the success of both of those functions are highly predicated upon this team. How how big is that team for you guys? Uh, I think the data team is four people uh, total, and we kind of tend to borrow occasionally for expertise from, say, our development team or uh, occasionally our marketing team. But there's a full time team of four who um, they also, by the way, manage and are essentially our Salesforce administrators as well. Um, uh, but uh, it is a team of 
software that um, consistently is is grinding data for every department in the company. This would make a great blog post, by the way, to just show what a data ops team can do for these kinds of functions. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that, that'd be great. Yeah, actually, I think I, the guy who runs our data team, I think, is actually in the process of slowly building out a couple of blog posts because it really is interesting. And the big learning, as I said earlier for us, was I think most companies are recognizing data is becoming important, but often think it's they're not ready for it. And we actually, you know, we started at 18 months or two years, probably coming up on two years now. And even then, I felt we were late. Like, I felt we were just letting, you know, you know, once you reach enough uh, critical mass in your in your product to have data to actually crunch, um, uh, you should be on it. It, sh- it should be the key to driving the business. And it, and it's not just for sales and marketing. Um, it, data the data team is moving around our business looking for efficiencies everywhere they go. Customer success, customer support, and even product is getting a lot of direction now from data. Um, and the insights that we can get from driving the data um, kind of goes around the department. So they're like the busiest guys in the company. It's great. Yeah. Um, and so, so talk about the, the how this correlates with the marketing function. Because let's say marketing function has a webinar and there's a very detailed form that says, you know, name, phone number, company, org size, all this kind of stuff. And they fill out that form. How, how much is the data team adding to this? Or are you guys more strategic with those forms based on the fact that you have a data team? Yeah, so both actually. So we're strategic in the forms and that we're always trying to gather a different amount of information. And as you know, there's a ton of research out there that, you know, you ask too many things and people will abandon or they'll give you fake. And, you know, and there's other writings that says ask everything you want because if they're really interested, they're going to be really giving you the information. There's all that. So we're trying to constantly test all that. Um, What the data team does really well is, you know, we find um, marketing initiatives that we view as successful. The data team um, generally will verify the success at or failure at a different level than standard marketing analysis would do. So people use all the marketing tools that are out there and say, okay, you know, how many of these leads turned into this and this, and that's valuable at some level, but that's kind of what everybody's doing. The data team takes it to a different level, starts to dig into kind of demographic information. They'll look for little spots where people are abandoning webinars. They'll look for places, um, you know, show rates and how it correlates to how people are functioning inside the trial experience with us. They'll look for um, different spots within um, kind of testing marketing keywords, marketing approaches, does the value proposition play with this segment of our market versus another segment? And they're constantly tweaking it and they feed back a different you know, level of information to the marketing team above and beyond what would be viewed as a kind of market normal marketing analysis and allows us to really drill down um, uh, so when those leads kind of flow through the system and make it to the sales guys, uh, the sales guys are rolling into Salesforce and looking at a whole pile of additional data beyond the demographics of the customer. It's how many spots in our trial did they touch? How quickly did they go from webinar to trial? Because there was a call to action at the end of the webinar that says click here and get into a free trial. Um, all of those little things that, you know, as one-offs don't mean anything in aggregate are hugely valuable for every step of the process. And when they, once they've gone through all these, then they pick the leads and then hand it off to the SDRs until then it doesn't get to an SDR. That's right. So they do as much as they can to to um, increase our chances of SDR conversion. So put the best leads forward. And then what's also interesting as an example, towards the end of the year, we said, um, you know, we're, we're closing pretty efficiently. Um, and we asked the DOPS team to kind of open the funnel a little bit, widen the net a little bit for it, the SDRs. So we are okay 
to uh, let the SDRs work on slightly less qualified leads. Put them in there. Let's see what we can do. We're, you know, we're having a good year end. We're on a roll. Let's see if we can find some opportunity that otherwise might not have flowed through the system. And they can easily do that by just, you know, only data could kind of create that and all of a sudden widen the net a little bit and create this whole new level of opportunity for us. And that actually worked. And we can kind of open and close it as our capacity um, needs change over the course of any day or month, however it's going. And while these leads are sitting with the, the, the data operations team, is your marketing automation engine still running to get them more qualified? Absolutely. So the nurture stream, the nurture efforts continue to go, um, continue to work. Um, and, uh, you know, that might be the trigger that, um, some slight change in, in some activity from the customer or some response to a nurturing campaign that will finally allow Mar uh, the DOPS team to say, okay, it's reached our threshold and they kick it over to the SDR team. Mm -hmm. No, that, that's great. Um, on the SDR note, like, what does the process look like? I mean, I know the phone is where you're spending most of your time, but uh, how, how much do you guys use other channels like uh, LinkedIn or social and, uh, and e email even? Yeah, so... Um, for the selling organization, for the most part, they st stick pretty much to uh, phone and and email. Um, we let all like marketing obviously uses every channel. We're you know we're doing a big expenditure on Facebook now, which has been really successful successful for us. But once it kind of reaches our sales folks, we we are trying very much to have real face to face conversations, or sorry, real over the phone conversations. And email is a backup, although an effective one. And we're you know we're using some tools to uh, kind of analyze keywords and, you know, emails and phone call words that, that, that work uh, best. But for the most part, the channels that our sales team uses up and down the board is uh, phone call first, email second. Um, and it's been pretty effective. And it might, you know, I think everybody would say that to some degree. Our particular market, lawyers like to talk to you. Um, they trust voice in many cases over other kinds of communication. I think it's, you know, they're trained to be, um, you know, overly cautious about uh, what they do and what they say. So we try to, we try to cater to our, our client base and they react best to phone. And then we engage them in technology. We'll use all of the appropriate demoing tools and follow-up uh, tools to make sure that we stay engaged. Uh, but we try to use phone and email as much as we can. And, and how do you balance that, that email communication in terms of the customer experience when marketing is also sending email communication? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So what we've done is we've actually built what we call our SOP, our standard operating procedure for each of those four uh, high-level sales uh, functions that I spoke about. So as an example, in the SDR team uh, who is doing follow-up, and I've always viewed it as a sales leader, hey, you know, the customer touched us first. In my mind, that gives us permission to, get to you know, engage until they tell us to stop. Um, and so we will, you know, we have an operating procedure, which, you know, phone call within the first five minutes of, of, of touch, if possible. And then a, an operating procedure that says follow-up phone call by this point after the first touch. If you obviously, if you haven't heard back from them, follow up again by this point with another phone call. Then we follow up with an email after a certain amount of time, if there's been no contact there, then we follow up another phone call and another email, et cetera. And we build this operating procedure. So we try to balance the two and then tweak only when necessary, when we're given some indication from the customer that we should either stop obviously, or try something else. Um, and we try to stick pretty tightly to the operating procedure, which has been successful for us, although it's a little, it's, it's a more challenging management environment. Um, it's, it's successful because it, 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 
goes back to the mantra of let data drive as many decisions as we can. And if we stay consistent with our approach, the analysis that the data can do on, as an example, hey, we're seeing that you need four phone calls to get somebody engaged on average. That's where we're getting success. Data knows that, and we know don't stop at three. The fourth one is the one that gets you over the hump. Um, and that kind of insight by creating a, um, an operating system that we stick to pretty tightly has been uh, part of our success. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. You guys have built a really well-oiled sales machine that's bringing in whatever, 50% SQLs from your SDR team, uh, a few hundred more from your BDR team, and then you have these, this awesome conversion rate from your velocity and strategic teams. It's, it's really something. Yeah. Yeah, we're pretty proud of it. The, 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 um, the challenge becomes scale, right? Like how do you take this SDR or this BDR team at 12 and turn it into 25? You have to add more managers. Your training has to change. Your tools have to be um, top-notch. You know, there, it, this, the scaling, uh, as, as with most companies, is, is often where the challenge lives. So, so what, are, what are your plans going forward to handle that challenge? Uh, so, you know, we, we struggle with the same challenges everybody doing, which is finding enough good people to help. Um, so there's always lots of good selling jobs available and, um, probably more data operations jobs available than people even think. So certainly getting the right amount of people and then building the infrastructure to support it. So training is easy when you got your first two training becomes much harder when you're adding two or three per month. Um, and because then you need a machine to drive it, the data becomes good until you've got uh, your volume of data increases fivefold and it slows down the machine. So you got to make sure you're constantly monitoring your tools and you've got a bench of people to uh, backfill. Again, nothing revolutionary here. If you don't have the people, uh, the qualified people in the seats or the trained people in the seats to get the work done, you can't scale. And that, you know, like I think most companies of our size, um, probably our single biggest challenge is, is hiring uh, quickly enough and effectively enough to, to keep up with the demand. Um, and also finding the sweet spot on, on messaging and marketing and all of those things that if any single mistake is made, um, can slow down the machine. All of a sudden, if our lead flow goes from 23 or 2400 and doesn't continue to increase as we planned it to, but starts to drop, all of a sudden I've got overcapacity in my SDR team and my CAC goes out the window because I've got too many people sitting around with not enough calls to make every day. So, you know, there's this balance constantly of making sure you're ready for scale but not not over uh, building an overcapacity where you the economics just explode, which has happened in so many – there's so many examples of, you know, I'm going to put – I'm going to put 100 people on my BDR team because they're yeah. earning their money back, but very quickly it it it, it implodes on you because uh, the scale didn't work. Yeah, so how do you, how do you how do you uh, stagger that across though? So like when you're saying, you know, ideally you could technically double your team tomorrow and then have more yeah. dialers, but maybe you go through it in phases. Yeah, we do. So we built what we call, and I don't, again, I don't think this is revolutionary, but we did kind of a, uh, we called it internally a revenue commit model. So we basically worked our way backwards from every department that has input on this selling machine, and, you know, especially marketing, in many cases, product, um, everybody kind of builds their commit. So, you know, marketing says, here's how I'm going to grow MQLs over the course of 2017, month by month. We then work backwards, do all the standard, you know, um, 
brain crunching, uh, number crunching that works it backwards using our conversion rates. I, as a sales leader, say, okay, my commitment is I'm going to increase my conversion rates. I did 40% last year. My commitment is I'll get us to 45% by July. So let's work our way backwards. And then we, you know, at the bottom of that spreadsheet, you end up with how many people you need to meet that capacity. And then we hold everybody very accountable to make sure their part of that revenue commit model is held up. And if anybody is missing, we try to anticipate that so that we can um, alter this, how we scale to make sure we don't get caught with, and we had it in my early days, I had more AEs than I had capacity for them to sell. So the marketing machine wasn't feeding them and I was paying money to guys who were feeling uh, unsuccessful because they couldn't get to their number and that we were spending money that we didn't need to do. So we right-sized and started to be much more analytical and data-driven about how we're going to make that. And in 2016, it worked really well. 2017, obviously, aggressive growth plans. So if all the department leads step up and deliver on their revenue commit model, I think we'll be in pretty good shape. Right. No, fantastic uh, advice and sharing there, man. Uh, just final thing, I think we're, we were running out of time. So uh, what, what advice do you have for someone who's earlier in this process to build out the sales engine? What, what, what advice would you have? Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, the learnings that I've said a couple of times throughout our conversation today is um, data is really important. So hire it probably earlier than you think you need um, uh, because it, I think it drives a lot of uh, the success earlier on than most people uh, think of. So that is one big learning for us. Um, figuring out um, kind of an operating procedure has been really important for us. So a lot of, you know, senior sales leaders like myself and others come in and we kind of know what to do, but we've got to build a procedure that is kind of repeatable and kind of almost machine-like in the way we run the sales organization. One, so that data can be effective, but two, so that we can um, we can unpack anything that's been successful or anything that hasn't been successful and iterate really quickly. Um, those are the two big learnings I came. You know, coming from Salesforce, eight and a half years, you know, undoubtedly the best-selling organization in technology, in my opinion, even four years out from being there, I still believe that. Um, what they did so well was they hired great salespeople, but they, they had a machine that fed that so effectively that it let salespeople just be salespeople. Like, I'm hiring you to talk to customers, move deals forward, maximize revenue on every opportunity you get, and create a good experience for the customer. That's what salespeople should be doing. Everything else is, is a distraction in my mind, and if you build a machine early and effectively and let salespeople do what they're paid to do, I think you'll see the results uh, quicker and more uh, and uh, kind of more explosively than you probably anticipated. Great advice, man. Uh, and last but not least, I just want to show you some, some appreciation for taking the time to do this today. I think you guys have done a fantastic job and that deserves some recognition. And I think a lot of companies, including Wild Africa, we've built our entire business on uh, marketing automation, content marketing, and pay-per-click and had a lot of success with that. But I think our next stage is definitely using sales uh, to grow our organization. So thanks a lot for the advice and I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Enjoyed the talk and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Stephen. That's it for today's episode, guys. Before you end this episode, I have a few requests. Uh, one, if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Number two, please leave a rating and review uh, just so that other people who are looking for similar information or podcasts like this can discover it better. And number three, if you want to work with us at How to Sass, check out the website www.howtosass.com or email me directly. Uh, that's shiv at howtosass.com. Uh, other than that, thanks for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.